Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Rock on Tours podcast. I am Gary Kemp. And I am Guy Pratt. This week on the show, we are talking to an artist, a writer, a producer and a powerhouse of British pop. A man who has written some of the best songs of the last 40 years. Welcome to Rock on Tours, Nick Lowe. We first met, I'm sure we, I mean, we may have met before, but uh, sitting at uh, Robert Elms, the um, the broadcaster, Robert Elms' 60th birthday last year when all was sensible and we could do things like that. No social distancing at that one. I was thrilled to sit next to you because you've been so much part of my musical history and dare I say growing up as well, because I'm a little bit younger. But certainly, you know, through that whole punk era and then into your sort of silver-headed, more sort of personal dotage. former dotage, <laughs> yes. Uh, have, have, you, have you met Nick, Guy? I have met Nick a long time ago. Very, very yeah. long time Weren't you with, um, touring with Pink Floyd? Yes. It was a hotel room in New York, I believe, and Pete Thomas was involved, I think. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And a Corby yes. trouser press. Always, always <laughs> I have actually seen a Corby trouser press in a hotel room in America, but only once. Oh, of Pete, course, they're, not a, they're rarer than in England, of course, yeah. Uh, yes, I think they are. Yeah. Well, Pete Thomas used to have a whole thing about Corby trouser presses, didn't he? He used to have a... <laughs> <laughs> it's probably best left. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know and doesn't travel as much as rock stars do, it's the place that sits on the corner where you just sort of throw your jacket when you walk into the room. And I've never pressed my trousers on tour. Well, I was lucky enough to have a, someone travelling who did that for us, but I'm sure you've, uh, you've used one before, Nick. I have. I, I've actually got a very ancient one at home, but I've never, like you, I've never felt the need to put a smart <laughs> crease in my trousers when I've been on the road. It's your shirt. You want something to do your shirt. Never mind your trousers. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, where to begin with you? Because you started out in that pub rock scene and in the Brinsley Swatch band, and then you were a solo artist. You you produced Elvis Costello's records, The Pretenders, Dr. Feelgood, Graham Parker, and then you've gone on and on and had hugely successful solo records. There's so many sort of heads to look at when you're looking at Nick Lowe, isn't there? Who are you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> well, I've done all those things. Well, that sounds terribly glamorous. When you say hugely successful <laughs> records, I think that's slightly egging the cake a bit. But um, I suppose I, I think of myself really as, as a songwriter because I, I think I always was anxious to have some sort of a career in the music business by which I could have the... Um, the great good fortune and uh, to be able to make a living out of making music, but I wouldn't have to do the hard work of being famous, really, and which is quite convenient because uh, I've, you know, never enjoyed this sort of success such as you gentlemen have. But um, I got the sort of horrors about uh, what 
real success in the, in the we call it show business or the pop business, pop business really. At a very early age, I got a very sharp shock because I was in a in the band you mentioned, Brinsley Schwartz, and uh, I won't tell the whole story; it's too long. But we we weren't victims at all because we did it with you know great enthusiasm. But we um, got involved with a big, massive hype probably the first one of the modern era in about 69 1970 where people people were talked about Brindley Schwartz as the definition of hype yeah I think they did yeah we fell in with um, a management team who got us a gig at the Fillmore East basically which was quite clever of them to do that because we really weren't much good the Fillmore East was the sort of mecca of cool music uh, in New York New York City and they got us a gig there and they chartered a jet uh, from Aer Lingus and filled it up with literally every every journalist they could. There was people there not only from the music press and the and the daily papers, but from uh, sort of trout fishermen, <laughs> pop, you know, popular mechanics, you know, and they crammed this plane full. And it was very much a sort of straight world and a kind of hip world. You know, there was the underground press all smoking pot at the back you know back of the plane that was in the days when you could smoke smoke anyway on an airplane of course seems strange now anyway everything that could go wrong did go wrong well how Uh, was the gig what was what was the audience like oh it was terrible it was it it was really terrible we we (laughs) well we made um, so many mistakes um we were supposed to go oh i i can't start in on this it's such a long story and um that's what you're here for, Nick. You're here for that. <laughs> well, I could go on about it. It's looked so good on paper. We were supposed to arrive in New York about, you know, a week before and uh, go and check out the Fillmore, you know, see a couple of shows there and do a bit of rehearsing. On this gear we'd ordered up, they t- asked us what gear we wanted, you know, to do this show. So, of course, what we did, instead of uh, just copying the, sort of crappy old stuff that we were used to playing through, we sort of gave them our dream list, you know, of these massive Fender Showman amps, you know, we all fancied. We were kids, you know. And so, of course, when we got to uh, New York, which, by the way, was about half an hour before we were due on stage because we couldn't get into America, we were confronted with all these (laughs) brand-new, strange amps we didn't know how to get a sound out of them or anything you know it was uh, mistakes like that you know wow. that uh there's, there's so much to this story that I, that's why i'm i'm umming and ahhing uh, about how it did you how did you get to that stage though i mean who were you growing up when when did you first discover music and what kind of music did you love because Brin- just to slightly bring people up to speed bringley swartz came out of in my mind came out of what we call the pub rock scene which was a sort of pub rock which is the predecessor of punk rock and and had a real country feel the sort of sound you were trying to get was kind of like the band um you know influenced yeah, we, by that we love the sound yeah but what about what about you growing up nick what got you into music and 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 how did you end up in brinsley schwartz well my mum was very musical she actually came from a sort of showbiz family you know kind of vaudeville her folks were in uh were in vaudeville and um she was a pretty good singer in a in a she's always sounds to me a bit like rosemary clooney you know whenever i hear rosemary clooney you don't hear very much anymore but i'm always rem- reminded of my 
dear late Ma um, when I hear yeah. her. But anyway, she was um, really pretty good. She taught me a few guitar chords, and uh, she had some good records as well. Most of the things that most sort of kind of middle class families had back then, a lot of show tunes, you know, Oklahoma, South Pacific, good singers, Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Peggy Lee, Dinah Washington, Doris Day as well. But amongst them, she had a couple of records by Tennessee Ernie Ford, who's best known here for uh, 16 tons. Oh. And he had a sound, I, I didn't know it then, but he had a sound which I could tell even I was about seven. She had these two 10-inch albums by Tennessee Ernie, and I played them incessantly. I liked all the stuff. I played all these records and liked them all. But Tennessee Ernie's stuff, I didn't know it, but it wasn't sort of Nashville country. I didn't know it then. It wasn't Nashville country. It was actually California, West Coast country, which had much more of a jazz style to it. You know, a lot of jazz players, I guess, went up there, you know, during the war. That's where they made all the aircraft and the shipyards and things like that. Those folks wanted this kind of swing thing in there, which um, they sort of more homegrown Nashville stuff was much more kind of hayseedy, you know. This had a slight sort of uptown glitter, great players. And uh, I could tell that this was, there was something about this stuff that really rang my bell. You know, there was, it was like a cartoon. Is this sort of music that like Jimmy Webb was aspiring to, or even the sort of uh, the Crosby, Stills, Nash scene? Oh it, no, it... before that, it was much more old time. It's more like, um, uh, what's his name and his Texas Playboys. Uh, but is uh, it what they aspired to as well? That West Coast country. I'm trying to focus on what that sound is. Oh really. no, it's 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 much earlier than that. This is, yeah, this is sort of fifties, even kind of post-war. You know, it's got right. they're playing on acoustic guitars and sort of uh, Hawaiian uh. steel guitars tuned to a jazz chord. You'd you'd recognize it as soon as you heard it. You know, this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was a real sort of 40s and 50s thing i heard this and that's it, it sounded to me like the uh, musicians playing on this stuff were all in tennessee ernie's gang you know it sounded like tennessee ernie was the cool guy and then he had these cool people in his gang you know putting these great licks in the drums were so swinging and it was fantastic music and that that really got me into it but i put it on the back burner of course when I started to hear rock and roll, and then, of course, the Beatles. I was, you know, 15 or something when the Beatles came out. I was crazy about all that. The Who, the Kinks, you know, Stones, all of that. Your whole, uh, if I, sorry, I've just skipped forward a little bit to come back, is that because uh, your whole oeuvre was, became known as power pop, which was actually a term coined for The Who and those bands in 1966. I think when it comes to that, you know, I think of being, you mentioned about the Brinsleys being, we love the band, you know, and that's what we were copying. Being in the Brinsleys was a bit like uh, going to some sort of college, you know, because we all, we all lived in the same house. When, when the thing in New York all went tits up, we didn't break up for some reason. We should have broken up really, but we didn't. We sort of got our heads down or we all moved into this big house together. It was sort of like a, we didn't think it was a hippie commune, but it sort of was, really. Getting it together in the country. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we, we didn't have any gigs. 
So we just started practicing and uh, thought, well, we, you know, we've got nothing else to do. We might as well just start trying to actually be good. And, and we loved the band. But then as we got more into them, we, we started being interested in what their influences were. And that opened up a whole other thing about New Orleans music and uh, Memphis blues and things like that. We'd never uh, be, had any real contact with it. It was quite hard to hear that stuff over here. But we we used to do a lot of work in Holland. We used to go over to Holland quite a lot. They love pub rock over there. What was that pub rock scene? What was the essence of it? Because I remember at the time, you know, I was actually in a pub rock band. I was I was a kid. I was 14, 15. I played in a band with a bunch of guys much older than me. I was sort of uh, servicing what they wanted musically because they were kind of really into the whole double denim country stuff that you're talking about now. And we were called the same band, you know. But around that time, you know, there are all these other tribes. There's the prog rock kids, there's the glam kids, you know, Roxy music. But there was definitely an element of English bands that wanted to be American. Americana was was so enticing, wasn't it? Well, it was. It, it actually was. But it was really later on in the Brinsleys that I certainly started trying to encourage them to stop being a sort of generic, you know, I mean, it sounds a, a bit much for me to say I tried to stop them, you know. <laughs> but I figured that it was much cooler to uh, start doing stuff which had a little bit of this in it and a little bit of that, you know, not just be, oh, we're a country band, you know, or we're R&B group. And we started, because the pub rock thing, to get back to your early question, was it, the band was supposed to be like a jukebox. but didn't play very loud. We certainly didn't play very loud. That was our thing. We played really pretty quiet, but we could rock and roll. Were you playing bass at this point? I was, yeah. But we played these pubs, that, you know, we had residencies in them. But we try and do things like, as well as our own stuff, we do covers. We And because we lived in this house, we could learn up, you know, three or four new tunes a week. And uh, we try and do whatever was number one that week, you know, for instance. So it didn't seem like a like a music lesson, some boring music lesson. It was, it was, it was tried to make it much more fun and, you know, so you couldn't pinpoint what we were trying to do. But that doesn't sound like you had, say, ambitions to be the next biggest band in Britain. Or, or am I wrong no. to say that? It sounds no, like you no. were just trying to, like, make the soundtrack for someone to order their next pint of real ale. <laughs> it, it, it was really. The, the pub rock scene has got a really bad rap, you know. In fact, I use that expression myself, you know, I have done in, in the past. You know, oh, it's a bit pub rock, meaning a kind of earnest boogieing, you know. That's what it came to be known as, which I, I find, you know, terribly tiresome, tedious, that few things worse than a bad blues band and most blues bands are bad <laughs> a, a good one is a is a beautiful thing you know but they're very very rare and um that's really i'm afraid due to the feel goods really when they came, they were so great and they 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 blew everyone away and it, it seems so simple what they were doing and and unfortunately they moved out of the pubs they started to get too big for the pubs when they moved out they their places were taken by many many copyists you know and that really killed the whole scene because it just got this boogie thing you know just um tired everybody out what was your introduction to feel goods then i met them in playing in the pubs i think we was yeah we were still playing pubs when they came along you know we were pretty successful through through doing it it was only a really a london thing i only really worked in london 
they tried it in a few other cities, but it, it didn't it didn't really catch on. But uh, we we started to sort of from being the laughing stock that we were, you know, when we came back from uh, New York in the funny way that the Brits have of, uh, you know, they're loving an underdog, you know, we suddenly became the sort of darlings of this scene, you know, and we've done all this practicing and rehearsing. So we, we got pretty slick, you know, with this, and we had a huge repertoire we could do. And so we got, we started to, to you know, make something of a comeback. We, we moved out of the pubs then, we got a bit too um, popular to stay in them, and the feel goods came along. There yeah. were other bands like Ducks Deluxe, wasn't there? I know one called yeah. Bearded Lady, and there was all sort of those kind of names. Curzel Flyers, of course. But during this period, yeah. Nick, you wrote one of the greatest songs ever written. I mean, let's face it, you know, what's so funny about Peace, Love and Understanding comes out of that period, doesn't it? A bit of synchronicity there, which, of course, Curtis Steiger's covered on the Bodyguard album. Yes, he yeah. did. <laughs> well, the film <laughs> I was in, yeah, yeah. He never covered any of mine, though, did they? <laughs> and I was in the film. Well, that is just not right, Gary. Um, but but that's when you wrote that song, isn't it? About that time. I th always think of it as about as the first original thought I had, because up till then I'd been copying my heroes. Well, I don't know if it was the same with you guys, but um, when I realised that publishing was <laughs> songwriting was where the body was buried, you know, I thought, well, I'd better <laughs> learn how to do this. <laughs> And uh, so I, I just started copying, you know, rewriting my hero's catalogue. And then when I'd finished with that, I'd move on to somebody else, write, rewrite their catalogue. Whose catalogues can we find in your, in your catalogue? Oh, well, the, the band, definitely. I, I love, I love the them. But Van Morrison, Crosby, Stills and Nash, you know, that sort of thing. I, I went through and, all the... And I suppose there's a bit of Lennon in that title, isn't there? What's so funny about Peace, Love and Understanding? Well, I, I suppose there is. It was uh, the the original idea was for it to be a not exactly a joke, but um, but a little bit less sort of profound than uh, a song has has come to be known for the sort of profundity, mm. and that's down to Elvis, I think. Elvis Costello, he used to come and see the Brinsleys, and um, we used to see him generally when we played up in the sort of Liverpool area. He he used to come and. Uh, when I started, became his record producer, he said to me uh, one day, I want to do that Brinsley song, Peace, Love and Understanding. And by that time, you know, like all bands, you know, that never make it, your repertoire just goes in the great celestial dustbin, you know, of, um, of unwanted material. And unless you're lucky enough to have a couple of them plucked out, you know, and I had two songs from the Brinsleys plucked out. One was Peace, Love and Understanding. The other one was a song called Cruel to be Kind. But Elvis, it was Elvis who pulled uh, uh, Peace, Love and Understanding out. And he he really, you know, put the hurt on it. And that caught people's attention. And uh, Before we get to that, you mentioned Cruel to be Kind just then, I mean, which is absolutely stunning song. Yeah. I mean, so that was a solo record of yours. But you're, you're saying that it was somehow left behind from from Brinsley's. Yeah, it was. I, I I was involved with Stiff Records, you know, back at the, which was the sort of bridge between pub rock and punk rock, really, the early Stiff days. And I was involved with that. I became the sort of house producer for no, no other reason than I'd been in a studio more often than anybody else. I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing, but 
in those days, if you said you were a record producer, then you were one. <laughs> and, um, and, and that was in the days when you produced records by waving your arms around and telling a few jokes, you know, and, uh, and getting people at it, you know. But, um, but anyway, I started to get a bit of attention. I put a couple of records out on Stiff and uh, got a bit of attention. And uh, Elvis Costello also, whose records I was doing, he got more attention than I did. But he got an offer to make records for uh, Columbia Records in uh, in the States. And because, I suppose, because of association, they offered me a deal as well. And the great Greg Geller, who signed both of us to CBS, was a lovely old school kind of uh, record guy, A&R guy, you know, almost like a like a college professor. You know, he wasn't like one of those slick, hey, how you doing, baby? You know, he wasn't mm. at all like that. He was this kind of professor. But he, um, he signed me and Elvis. And uh, when I handed over everything I'd recorded, all my demos and everything to him, he heard this little demo the Brinsleys had done of Cruel to be Kind. And... Uh, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Originally, it was rather like a song. It wasn't a rip-off of the song, but it was, I wanted to write a song that had the same energy as The Love I Lost by Harold Melvin and the Blue oh, yeah, so I oh, love yeah, yeah. that I remember song. That. So Cruel to be Kind was, had that. I mean, obviously, obviously, it wasn't as good as the uh, Philly rhythm section, you know, that played on uh, <laughs> Harold Melvin's record. But it was us trying to do that groove, you know. And uh, Greg Geller said, look, uh, I've been listening to your stuff, you know, and there's a song there called Cruel to be Kind uh, that I really uh, uh, think you should uh, think about re-recording. I said, yeah, Greg, yeah, because I thought that was, you know, I'd done all that, you know, that was the Brinsleys, you know. Right. So I said, oh, Greg, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, oh, thank, thanks, man. But look, I've got this song about a film star who's eaten by her dog, you know, which I think is far, way more interesting, <laughs> you know, and, and he would nod away and, you know, say, yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah, that sounds good to me too. I want to hear that. But, you know, I really think that that could, and every time I'd see him, he'd lean on me, but in the most lovely, gentle way, you know, by this time I was with Rockpile, this band I was with, with Dave Edmonds and Terry Williams and Billy Bremner. And, uh, we were doing a lot of recording then, and uh, one night in the studio, I said, look, I'm getting lent on to do this song, this Cruel to be Kind, you know, do you think, uh, how about it, boys? You know, do you think we could knock this one out? And um, so they were a bit sniffy about it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we got down to it, and um, 
Not started having a pretty good time. And then Edmonds came up with this brilliant vocal part in the Cruel to be Kind. And suddenly it started taking shape. And it was, it, we left Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes behind. And yeah. um, it turned into, uh, well, it was a pretty, it was a pretty reasonable hit. It was. Yeah. I, it was number 12 in America, wasn't it? Yeah, just it, it it just wouldn't go into the top ten for me. Hey, man, take the top but, uh, twenty. That'll do. I'll take the top twenty. Yeah, but you and Dave seem to make things quite complicated for yourselves in terms of your recording and stuff. I mean, you always seem to have complicated recording setups, didn't you? In terms of contracts and stuff, where well, it has to be his record, and then you had to make a basically rollers compilation or something. Uh, yeah, well, that was a little bit earlier on. Yes, after the Brinsleys split up, I wanted to get a new record. I was I was signed to United Artists. I wanted to get out of that record deal and actually do stiff, you know, because I was uh, uh, me and Jake Riviera were sharing a, a flat at that point. He was Jake was my manager, and he was inventing stiff and designing this new record label and the way he wanted it to go and uh and i was very keen to do that but i had to get out of my contract with, with united artists so i thought well what i'll do is i'll i'll just write some really terrible songs and they'll um they'll just chuck me out you know and uh, so i did this thing called bay city rollers we love you and uh <laughs> and, and sent it into them, and uh, and they loved it. That's uh, our Hitler. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, they thought it was great, and um, it was a hit, as a matter of fact, because the they released it in Japan because the rollers were really really big there, and uh, it was actually quite a big hit in in uh, Japan. But I but I did a, a follow up to that called uh, "Let's Go to the Disco" by the Disco Brothers, and that one did the trick. They 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 booted me out after that. <laughs> but Nick, I you know. Thinking back to where I was in sort of 1976, 77, and the whole punk thing beginning, and, you know, I was going to all those shows. You know, when I'd look in the NME, which was my sort of music paper of choice, and I saw a picture of you, it would be like, ah, the grown-up in the room. And you really felt like <laughs> that you were the guy who was somehow not a Svengali, but you were the one that was just keeping all of these brats together. And you produced what I still think is the greatest punk record of all time. And it was the first punk record. I remember that brilliant picture on the front sleeve, New Rose by The Damned. How was it for you to end up producing one of these anarchic groups? Well, uh, I met them on a... Uh, a festival in France called the Mont de Marson Festival. It was a punk festival. Anyway, uh, I met them uh, down there, and I I really liked them. I thought they were, well, they were like a garage rock and roll band. I love garage rock and roll, you know, and yeah. and uh, it, and that's I always thought that was different from punk music, which I didn't really care for very much. You know, I was a bit I was a bit older, you know, and I'd been a mod, you know, so I, I liked something a bit more of a groove and a tune, you know, and I. I wasn't crazy about what became known as punk music. Ramones, definitely. I thought they were great. And The Clash, you know, one or two of them. But I, I didn't really go for quite a lot of it. And I thought that The uh, the Damned were a, like a garage rock and roll band, more like the MC5 or the Stooges or something like that. And uh, I thought they were great. They used to uh, pull my leg, you know, call me granddad and uh, uncle, you know, and... Uh, um, I think I was, I think I was 26, I think, at the time, which, 
which did seem sort of ancient compared to them, but I thought they were great. And uh, I don't know how that record came out as good as it did, but it it's is a great minutes. record. Under two minutes. Yeah. We recorded in this place, which I don't know if you ever, did either of you ever record up a pathway in Stoke New Yes, yes, yes. No, yes. Spandau did that. We did our first demos in there. Uh, did you really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, 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 you would have done. Yeah, that was your sort of stomping ground it, up there. It was, yeah. Did you know that it was that building was Oswald Mosley's, where Oswald Mosley kept all his fascist literature, you know, his... Oh. Um, <laughs> All his leaflets and uh, you know placards and these <laughs> flags. Are no. still there? Yeah. No, he, no, he was he's gone. <laughs> Dire Straits recorded their first single there, as well. Yeah, which whatever that was called. And, uh, I, I think called. I think the police did. The police might have recorded Roxanne there. I think. Yeah, I think they did their first album there. Yeah. And, yeah oh, right. and uh, Fire, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, that was done there as well. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, so, considerably <clears throat> earlier than when we were there. You produced another amazing act as well, The Pretenders. Yes, I did. Uh, I, I was friends with Chrissy, but I feel a bit of a fraud about this, you know, because we, Chrissy and I had a brief but wonderful fling. I don't think that's too, um, you know... That's a family uh, show, Nick. That's much to say. <laughs> but we, we, out, yeah. we, we were good friends and still are, and still are. Pete Frame needs to do a sort of rock family tree of people who have had affairs with each other from each band. That would be much more interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, well, I remember Chrissy used to come round to the flat and she'd pick up a guitar and she'd, she was singing, doing these songs that she'd written. And I used to, I'm sorry to say, you know, I just used to, I didn't think they were much good, you know, and, and she was probably singing, you know, brass in pocket and, and uh you know, <laughs> who knows you know who knows what she but i i didn't I, I don't know about this chris you know really but anyway she played these songs and um then a couple of years later she contacted me and said uh, look i've got a record deal you know you don't fancy uh, producing our record you know and she sent me a demo tape and i'm ashamed to say you know that i didn't really listen to it you know i didn't didn't do anything about it and she'd phone me up from time to time and say have you listened to it and i I, oh 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 i meant to last night you know and then one day she called me and and she said look she said have you listened to the tape and i said uh well i haven't she said look i'm at the end of the your road i'm going to come round now i've got a copy of it and you're going to bloody well listen to it so i did very very sheepishly and shamefacedly and I still didn't really hear what, what song she was, it? was what doing. Song? Well, it was a number of them, but right at the end was this kink song, Stop Your Sobbing. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And um, so I said, well, look, I'll tell you what, Chris, why don't we do Stop Your Sobbing <laughs> and see how it goes? <laughs> when you were getting into your production, who were your production heroes? Well, you know, really, it was Dave Edmonds. I, I, he was really something in the studio, and I really had to work hard to try and become friends with him. He was very reclusive. I was pretty in awe of him, and eventually he let me come and sort of sit in the studio and watch him. He used to make these great records on his own, and um, he used to do everything. So I'd sit at the back, and then eventually he started letting me go out and, and scratch a mic to see if it was on or move something around and, yeah. and then 
he'd let me drop him in, you know, I'd start to drop him in to fix a guitar thing or, and then a backing vocal or a hand clap, you know. And then eventually I started, I brought him a song one day when he was doing his album and he liked it and he, he recorded it. And it sort of went on like like that, but he was so fantastic in the studio, the way he wasn't overawed by the equipment, by the studio, you know, he, he would really sort of dominate it. You produced a, one of the great records for me, Blood and Chocolate, Elvis Costello, which was in the 80s. Oh, you like that one. Oh, good. There's a track on there called I Want You, and I think that's the greatest song of a cuckold ever. A jilted lover talking about his, his ex-girlfriend wife. The energy in that, it's vicious. But I mean, I remember when I was actually breaking up from my first wife that became the song that said it all for me oh my god it, it, really? it became one of those songs that i kept going back to there's so much drama in that i mean do you re remember that tune and did you remember specifically how is it to to then once you've broken elvis and he becomes one of the greatest rock stars in the world or rice songwriters in the world how do you go back in a room and tell him what to do oh well we had a pretty sort of close relationship really and um he's a really great musician you know he and and he um most of the best people i know like being told frankly how they're doing you know they don't like to be just just fawned over and uh yeah well some people do some people do but most of the best people that i've ever run across they don't really like that they really like to be told what the score is and uh, without throwing their toys out of the pram, you know, and, and storming out or anything like that. Sometimes you don't want to hear it, you know, but it, if they know that you're, it's a considered opinion that you're giving them, then uh, there's no problem at all. And I always got on very well with him in that respect. Is that sort of what you meant? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if I can throw in a little personal one closer to my heart as a bass player, because I, I always wondered how being a producer and a big picture guy, how kind of seriously you took your bass playing. Because I remember as an aspiring you know, school kid musician, the first time I heard I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass on the radio, I thought that's one of the most prominent and best bass sounds I'd ever heard. <laughs> Well, I only wish I'd played the bass on that record. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, no, I assumed you did. Oh, that's the last no, time you'll well, do this show. It's a, no, no, not, not at all. It, it, you did on top of the pop. Yeah. Oh, yes. You did on the so, you know, in my favour. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, no, that was the, uh, the aim. But um, that was, <laughs> I think it's the one and only time I've gone into a studio with really a half-baked idea uh, with a couple of guys, you know, bass player and a drummer, and said, look, I, boys, I've got this idea. It sort of goes a bit like it's got a kind of bow diddly beat, you know, and it goes like this. And it was, um, I love the sound of breaking glass. And we worked it up in the studio, worked this thing up in the studio. And the bass player, Andy Bodnar, it was it was uh, the two guys from um, Graham Parker's group. Oh. And um, Andy Bodnar said, uh, you know, can you got a little lick, you know, you could stick in there, something a bit saucy, you know, and he came up with that. And I, my first reaction was, um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but then suddenly after I'd heard it, well, not suddenly, you know, after I'd heard it two or three times, I thought, this is really great. I've never heard anything like that. And the same with the piano solo which was just bob andrews his first run through but he did that sort of crazy piano solo oh, yeah, yeah yeah 
and I, I guess I was, you know, I, I started to feel that really you can do anything, you know, in, in there isn't really a rule book, you know, you, you can try anything, stick anything in the, in the pot. There's something weird about this song, right? Which I, as a kid thought was, well, it wasn't that I was 16, 17. So I'm thinking there's a bit of a conspiracy theory going on here because there's a connection between you and Bowie. Cause here was, you oh, know, yeah, he yeah, had yeah, a yeah. song called breaking glass. You have a song called I love the sound of breaking glass. He has an album called Low, L-O-W. You then release an album called Bowie, B-O-W-I. So what was going on? You're having a laugh. Well, I was a, I was a great admirer of his. And I, I've always been an admirer of his rather than a, a, a fan, I suppose. And, he, you know, he is great. There's no doubt. I, I think I always was much more interested in, how, in what he was wearing, you know, and his kind of everything else about him. I thought he was, I never met him. Did you ever, did you ever know? Yeah, him? yes, yes. They, yes. Uh, guys oh. played with him. Ah, ah, yes. Well, I, I've got lots of friends who knew him well, and I never, I never met him, but I never heard anyone say a bad word about him. You know, he seemed like a really cool guy. Well, obviously he was a cool guy, you know, but uh, <laughs> he, he seemed like a, a nice man too. And um, I was, I was a great admirer, great admirer of his. So it was just a, a I think that breaking glass thing wasn't, um, I think I got that by osmosis, you know. I must right, have... right. <laughs> there, was, there was a film as well called Breaking Glass, wasn't there? Right. That was, that was later, yeah. Very popular title around about that time. <laughs> there, was, there was something else really in, in the kind of music you made at the time. So there's these boys making punk records and the, and the Bowies and all that, and they're really earnest and serious. So it's not to say you're not serious, but what you were doing, and to a certain extent what bands like Squeeze were doing, was a sort of ironic pop that... Um, I'm kind of connecting it with that first artist you said you love, that sort of those pseudo cowboys back in California who were playing a bit of a game about a character, about being someone else. So, and you're making music that were very character driven, that had this sort of tongue in cheek slightly about pop references. Is that true to say? Yeah, I think so. I think we were playing around with it. And certainly with stiff records, you know, we, we really had a ball there, you know, to, putting records in the, out in the wrong sleeves and, you know, sort of creating mistakes, you know, putting the wrong label on and scratching messages into the... Because we were music fans as well. We were record collectors and fans, and we loved all that stuff, you know, little mistakes and things and misprints on the sleeves. And here we were, we could do them on purpose, you know, just do a limited run, you know, of mistakes <laughs> and uh, release them and then, and then recall them you know, that sort of thing. So there'll be two copies out there, which would suddenly be really valuable. We were just having fun with it. It was, we, uh, yeah. We haven't really got onto your later stuff as a solo artist and this incredible voice you've discovered in a way. I mean, you, you know, I know you wrote a song with Johnny Cash years ago, but you've, you've kind of developed this way of, I think beautifully just having a very, very simple semi-acoustic guitar and your voice, and it's uh, it's all you need now in your production. Well, that's uh, very kind of you just <laughs> to say that. <laughs> I thought it was sort of needs must, really. I, I came to a, a stage in the early 1980s, you know, when I really thought that I've got to change my act, really. My brief career as a sort of pop star was over. The public had moved on, and I was sort of, so I, I decided to uh, really change my style. You know, I, I, my, my, 
I was in a pretty bad way, you know, not to put too fine a point on on it. I was really exhausted and drinking too much and my, my marriage had gone south as well, you know. And I really needed to have a change of mind. And um, so I did. I, I sort of locked myself away for a, a year or two. And in that time, I, I sort of developed a theory about this kind of songs I wanted to write and the records I wanted to make, whereby I could take advantage of the fact I was getting older, which at that time didn't have any time for people who were older in the business. You were you were absolutely past it if you were 30. Nowadays, you can't move for old gits all still at it. You know? <laughs> but, um, but back then, it was, it was a young man's game, and that was it. Unlike jazz, you know, or blues, or MOR music, you know, or even country and Western at that time, you couldn't be too old, you know, for that, but not pop. And I thought, well, I'm going to invent a style for myself where I can feel comfortable about getting older. In fact, it'll almost be an advantage. Yeah. People will envy me the fact that I'm older. It's got to be a much more confessional sort of style, not, not right. whining and moaning, you know, it's got to be sort of uh, soulful, but uh, approachable, you know, and uh, I had all these sort of theories and, and um, I could go on about it, you know, but, uh, uh, can I actually say, say one thing, though, talking about is that uh, what I always remember is it, whenever I used to go to No Miss Studios in the 80s, in the yeah. in the canteen there, there was a photo of you on the wall and you're tucking in, you're wearing a very, very smart suit and it just says, thinking of buying the joint. And it was one of those things that whenever I saw it, it was like, all is well with the world. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, all is well with the world with you in it. Nick, it certainly is. Thank you so well, much. I mean, yeah. brilliant. I'm so, we're so glad to have you on. Ready? Well, it's it's very sweet of you to have invited me, and I, I'm very flattered seeing the company I seem to be keeping um, with, uh, with this. But th thanks very much, uh, fellas, and uh, I hope to see you socially before too long. Well, absolutely. absolutely. That would be great. All the so, best, sir. All the best. Thank you so much. Cheers. Well, that's it for this week's uh, Rock on Terse. And uh, thanks for listening. And thanks especially to Nick Lowe. Don't forget, you can listen to previous episodes of the series and make sure you leave a nice review too. It all helps. Yes, please. We are back next week. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.